and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 300 and one, and part two of my conversation with the founder of both the National Conference on Percussion Pedagogy and C. Allen Publications, and creator of the Book of Percussion Pedagogy and Pete's grad school mentor, Court McLaren. But first up, thanks again. I'm happy to have received so many great thoughts and congratulations and good wishes for both reaching the 300th episode of the show, which a particular favorite frequent podcast guest, Lamont Lawhorn, texted me a GIF from the movie 300, and for my announcement about presenting a clinic on podcasting at PASIC this upcoming November. I'm excited to have both gotten to the milestone episode and to get the chance to present at PASIC this year and more info on that coming soon. Otherwise, summer is progressing on as fast as it always does, and suddenly, we're a month out from band camp at Mizzou. What? But let's get back to our conversation with Court McLaren. Last week, we got the chance to deep dive into the beginnings of both C. Allen Publications, along with the book of Percussion Pedagogy, learning a lot about Court's upbringing and some of the more unusual aspects of his training. This time around in part two, we'll get to his years teaching middle school and high school band, the development of his particular teaching and performance philosophies, his enjoyment of rehearsing percussion ensemble and coaching dissertation research, his own time as a PhD student, and the usual end of the podcast. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on July 1st, 2022, and it begins right now. backtrack a little bit here what was your high school middle school teaching job the first place i signed a contract i never taught at okay was a little place called partridge kansas right outside of hutchinson and it happened to be the school where my high school band director had first taught and it was a tiny little school about 40 percent of the school was amish so they were not allowed to be in band. Okay, so about a month after signing the contract for that job, I got a call from the uh, superintendent. He said, I got to tell you that the, the school building was condemned. So, so you're not going to be able to teach in Park Beach. And since we have a contract with you, we're willing to put you over in Pretty Prairie to be the assistant. So I went over in Pretty Prairie, to Pretty Prairie and looked at that, and then I said, nah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. So I was out of a job. Then I got a call from Russell, Kansas. Would you be interested in, in looking at this job? I had no business teaching in Russell, Kansas. It was a huge program. I was this idealistic little twerp that, didn't know as much as he thought he knew. Uh, they had a 70-piece 6th grade band, an 80-piece 7th grade band, and a 70-piece 8th grade band We were all my responsibility. Now, the other teacher there helped with those. And then I did the second band at the high school, 
which was about a 90-piece band at the high school. And then there was a wind ensemble at the, the main guy. And he was, he was incredible. He was just incredible. Uh, uh, good guy, good teacher. And I had known him before. So that was my first year. And at the end of that first year, I thought, hmm, I don't think I was ready for this. I need to go to a small place with a small band and see if I can build a program. Now, I don't know where that stupid thought entered my brain. <laughs> but it was always a challenge to do something different and make it work. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, so I got a job in a place called Kiowa, Kansas. They had just built a new high school. They had about 130 kids in high school. And that first year, we had 24 kids in high school bed. I was pretty sure that I'd moved to hell. (laughs) (laughs) And I kept saying, why did I do this? Why did I do this? Well, they had consolidated two cities, well, two little tiny towns, in this high school to make the 130 students. Mm -hmm. So the 7th and 8th grade was 10 miles away. And I was supposed to to work with another teacher over there. Uh, See, that would have been late morning. And then we'd drive back and do the 5th and 6th grade band in the afternoon. Okay. So... The first day of school, I drive over to Hartner, where the middle school is, and we're talking about probably 35 students in a band, which was at least 50% of the school population. It's probably more than that. And I watched this guy rehearse, and then I went back to do the elementary. He never showed up. Superintendent comes into my into the band room after after school and said uh, uh, he quit. <laughs> Is this day one? Day one. Nice. <laughs> he quit. We can't find him. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> so what a start. <laughs> Was it something I did? <laughs> <laughs> So I did that whole program alone for a few weeks and we hired a, another guy to come in. And then for the next year, we hired uh, uh, a lady and she was fantastic. Um, and we, it was pretty much a team teaching thing for the next three years. Hmm. And that was, wow, was that a learning experience. Every fifth grader and sixth grader had a private lesson every week. Nice. In the school, during the school day, and since we taught team taught, I would take sections out in the middle school, or she would take them out. So they essentially got a group lesson every week and every section. So that program grew from a 24-piece band to, what, we had about 65, I guess, by the time I left. It's interesting that that experience, that five years of teaching experience, gave me a completely different perspective on music education. 
that carried into the university environment. What was the perspective change? We never mentioned it when we talked about the pedagogy book, but one thing that that really drove that was I've always had a keen sense of how can we develop ways that will enable high school graduates to know so much more than they know now Mm -hmm. or then, okay? And I I think when I first started teaching university, I was actually more more interested in developing high school programs than the university. Although I was able to do that at the university level, it was was okay. The, The purpose here is if Pete Zambito decides to go into high school teaching, I want him to do it in an intelligent way. And I want to help those band directors learn enough about teaching percussion that they're not putting out dumb kids. I mean, none of the kids are really dumb, but they're ignorant of how to play and musicianship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that teaching experience at the high school, middle school was something that I always aimed at doing, uh, but it solidified that, that attitude. I left high school during my first year of college. I knew nothing about academia. Nothing. Two things I didn't know anything about, academia and women. (laughs) So I said, I remember to a female friend, first year, I said, you know, I've been thinking about what I'm going to do in the future. And I said, uh, by this time, I'm going to have a PhD. Well, I didn't say PhD. I didn't know what that was. Mm-hmm. I said a doctorate. And by this time, I'm going to teach in the university. This is while you're teaching high school. You said you. No, this is my freshman year of college. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> Got it. Talk about lofty goals that you know nothing about and how to experience them or make them happen. Yeah. But it happened. Yeah. So there was always there was always a vision there of okay, this is what I'm gonna do. I don't know how to get there. Mm -hmm. Uh but but I'm gonna do it. And And I wasn't a great student because if I'd known why I wasn't a great student at the time. I could have done something about you know the first you know the first indication I think back way back way back to second grade okay. the first indication that I realized I was ADHD or I, I should have realized it or my parents should have realized it because I, I was sent to the principal's office second grade teacher I can see her as plain as day we were taking a spelling test, mm-hmm. second grade. I don't know what you were learning four four letter words at that time. I don't know what you do, uh, but she was giving us a word, and then she would yap. She would talk, mm-hmm. and uh, remember, she walked by my desk, and she says, "She says, well, you 
you missed some of these words. You didn't even write them down. And I said, well, if you'd be quiet, I might be able to. <laughs> and that, let me guess, that was not well received. <laughs> I went to the principal's office. <laughs> but, 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 you know, that was an indication right then that there's something different about this guy's processing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can't hear a word and write it down immediately, and then and then there's other speaking going on that interrupts that. <laughs> right. That didn't happen for another fifty years. Yeah, yeah. We get to that. <laughs> yeah. I remember you talk, and I I think this was was in percussion methods when when you talked about this but i i i have the memory of you talking about um when you were teaching um when you're teaching band high school band that you would have the students practice entering the room opening like you would go you would rehearse how they actually entered the room like you would you would break it that far back and just be like this is how you are going to act when class begins, basically. I did that in high school. When I first arrived, they hadn't experienced me or the teaching team as elementary or junior high students. So in, in order, and they came from three different bands. Yeah. So in order for them to understand the behaviors that I expected, everybody out the door. And when you come through that door, this is what you're going to do. You're going to stop talking. You're going to walk through the instrument room. You're going to pick up your instrument or take your instrument out, assemble it, go sit down and be quiet. And they didn't do it very well. Out the door again. You didn't get it. This is, and I, you know, I wasn't yelling at them or mean sure. to them. But I don't think you understand how we set the mood for the rehearsal. Um, now, another thing that you might remember I, I might have told you was I was very interested in, in behavioral modification mm-hmm. and, how, and how different types of reward work. Yeah. I don't know if this is the first year uh, somewhere when I was teaching at Kiowa, somewhere along that, that tenure there. The fifth graders, now these were not mischievous students. They mm-hmm. were small-town kids. They were really well behaved, but if you let them by with something, they would take advantage. Right. And I was teaching the woodwind and percussionists. Mm-hmm. Okay. In a, in a fairly large room, so I said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna try something here and see if this works." So when they came in the room, they weren't diligent about getting to their seat and having their horns ready when you know there's only like four minutes between classes and right okay they had so, to hustle anyway they had to hustle yeah but but we wouldn't we weren't starting on the dot yeah and we, so we were we were rehear- losing rehearsal time so I, one day i noticed a saxophone player he came in got his horn out sat down put his read on and he was ready to go. So when everybody was ready, I went over and 
purposefully shook his hand. Say, I want to thank you for coming in and doing this. And I outlined exactly what he did. And then I gave him a peppermint mint. <laughs> or peppermint candy, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The next day, everybody was there. Now, was it the candy or the recognition? I don't know. But so I gave everybody a mint, which the teachers fussed about because they were leaving the wrappers <laughs> over the floors. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and they, they couldn't eat it during band anyway because they'd get sugar on their on their mouthpieces. Right. So, but interestingly, I kept track of, I kept a, a schedule uh, of that and how it was working. Over time, and I want to say maybe three weeks, the students started to decline the candy. Now, in terms of rewards and punishment, what do you want a student to do is be internally rewarded. Right. I feel good about what I did. You didn't have to tell me anything. It's like when you, when you uh, reach a certain point in a, in a solo that you're performing and you get to a point where you say, I am rewarded, I am internally rewarded, and I feel great about that. That's the goal for life. We don't rely on other people to pat us on the back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So, like I say, within about three weeks, almost, well, all the kids, because they started to copy each other, declined the candy. But the behavior stayed the same. Mm-hmm. I did a, little, a few little experiments like that while I was teaching uh, in the public schools. You know, another similar thing at the high school was I allowed them to come in and once they were in their seat, they could could talk. Mm -hmm. They couldn't play. I didn't want them playing, which a lot of people disagree with that. Well, they ought to be warming up, blah, 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 blah. Now, they're going to warm up the way I tell them to warm up. I was really idealistic. (laughs) For... One day, I said, okay, I don't want to get up on that podium. My office was at the back of the band room. I don't want to get on that podium and have to tell them to be quiet. You know, and then you wait for a few seconds. Then you have to tell them again, be quiet. You know, so I came out one day uh, from the office, went straight to the podium, and I stomped on the podium. Poof. Heads went up. From that point on, all I had to do was walk out of the office door. And by the time I got to the podium, it was quiet. Now, were they paying attention? Who knows, but they were quiet. (laughs) So you could start doing something. I kind of tried to use a similar approach at the university, but I didn't stomp on any podiums. Uh, but, you know, when I got in front of the ensemble, I didn't want anybody talking. I, don't, I didn't want any chat, but we were ready to start rehearsing. What got me there? 
Well, uh, I was asking about things you were doing to um, like, like I, I said that you had the students come in. You pra- had them practice. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's all what you expect, Pete. Yeah. You know, and and making clear what your expectation is and then making sure that your expectation is not mean. Right. But just, you know, this is the way we do it. This is the way the pros do it. And there's no reason why we can't do it, too. Yeah. So it, that was so there, there are two elements of this that, that I, I was thinking about. One was I, I vividly remember. I, and I don't even know that you had to say anything at this point when I was when I was there as a grad student. Um, but I remember, I think the other grad students were like, okay, crush ensemble. He's going to walk in. He's going to pick up. It's like the order will be there. So you'll know what, what's coming. So he's like, you're, but he, he, they were like, he's going to walk in. He's going to pick up his baton downbeat. Like he's not going to say anything. <laughs> And so, like, they had passed down to me, and then that kind of got to, to I guess, everyone else, this idea of, of your expectations that, like, business. Yes. Two o'clock Friday or whenever it was, it was like, we're, we're doing business now. So, so that was kind of – so that was one thing you, you made me think of. But the other one was the aspect of when you talked about, though, not warming up, that I was relating that to pre-concerts – and pre-recitals, when you'd be, when you you would be like, Dude, no, no one goes out and plays their hottest licks. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah, and that's what everybody wants to do. Yeah, and they want, and they want to give the music away. They want to go out and practice their hard parts and give the music away, and and that takes away from the overall experience for the audience. We often forget the audience. Because we can, we can control the audience. We can control their reactions. We can control them when to applaud and how much to applaud. Both the ensemble and the conductor. Yeah. But you got to be aware of the audience enough to know that. Maybe that came from my doctoral research. I don't know. Thinking so much about what we look like. And whether it's good or bad, and how that affects the audience. I still think about that. I mean, I do it for my own performing, but I always think about it. All the stuff is happening that you're like, you that you. I just always think I'm like, you're in my head. I think forever now because you just be like, no hottest licks. <laughs> do you remember uh, the end of your solo this year at NCPP? Yes. What you did? What you did? To tell the audience to applaud. That's you. Uh, yeah. I, yes. I, well, but I, what did you do? Why well, piece ended with a with a, a role that dissipated to nothing, and then I I held it, and then I kind of breathed release and kind of stood up and looked at them. You're crazy. You had a big crescendo at the end of that. No, I that was the that was the phrase before. Oh, okay, all right, all right. Oh, oh, okay, you're right. Well, what you did was you ended that, you kind of froze, and then your eyes looked at the audience, and that told them. And you, when your eyes looked at the audience, and your mouth went down, 
you you did that quickly, and you were telling them, please pat me on the back. Right. Please applaud. Now, if you'd held that and just lowered your arms and maybe looked down at your mallets and put them away, they wouldn't have known the piece was over. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't have gotten any applause. <laughs> well, it felt bad for you. <laughs> it would have been like the, the kind of like, are we, is this the time? Is this yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. But you, you telegraphed that with your eyes and your hands. Yeah, that was you. That's, that's, <laughs> well, that's coming directly from you. It worked because we applauded it even though we didn't like it. Right, I know, I know. And then people lied to me <laughs> after about how much they liked the piece. It was great. It all worked out. Well, I, actually, I, I, I thought that was a good piece. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I thought it was a really good piece. I liked the way it, uh, I, I liked the way you took that monothematic idea and developed it. Hmm. Uh, and that's good for the listener. Thanks. I, I, I'm a big fan. I like the piece a lot as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did too. Cool. Yeah, well, the actually the thing that it was kind of nice, and this also is very much a you something I learned from you was some of the comments I got were how much people appreciated hearing the the marimba, like and hearing it as it's supposed to sound, because it was very much something that was about the organ quality. You know that. what made that happen? Roll speed. Absolutely. 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 The roll speed was not so fast that you killed the sound before it had a chance to get out to the audience. Yeah. Which is what most marimbas do. The roll speed's way too fast. Yeah. You gotta let the bar do the work and the mm-hmm. resonance. Well on a on another note with the applause thing. I, I would do this I, and I would always credit you when I was when I would teach um, when I teach methods or when I would do master when I would do studio classes with my studios over the years is I would do the bowing thing and I would do where I go and this is this came right from my teacher uh, Dr. McLaren is like so I'm gonna bow don't stop clapping until I give you the indication and then you would do it for like an absurd amount of time. <laughs> and I'd be like, I'm still not, I haven't indicated you can stop clapping. <laughs> if you, if you do a real quick bow, you're going to get less applause. Right. As long as you're bent over to some extent, they will continue to applaud you. Mm-hmm. Even though at a certain time, they'll feel uncomfortable about it. <laughs> <laughs> You can control them. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the thing. Was the it was also the the eyes and the and the nodding. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was yeah. really good. I'm gonna bow again. Oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know who's a master of that is Lee Stevens. Oh yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen Lee perform in quite a while, but in his early years, he was a master at, at controlling the applause with his his bow. Hmm. Very cool. And, and, and I have to say that most people don't have control of that. No. Because if you hold that that position too long, it makes you feel comfortable, uncomfortable. Yeah. 
You have to get kind of used to that. Oh, wait a minute. I hear the applause. Now it's, oops. Okay, time to get up. <laughs> yeah. There are so many things to be a musician that are so exciting to learn and even more exciting to apply to your own performance and to your students' performance. For me, that was always the exciting thing, to see Pete get a sparkle in his eye when something positive happened. What could be better than that? And, 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 and something that happened that was supposed to happen. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's that part, obviously, the kind of this realizing it for the self, but there's also the feedback from that I get from you about, like, I remember after one of my doctoral recitals and, like, you were more excited than I was about it. You know, that's always, that's, those are the moments that I remember um, almost as much as playing. You know, one of the, the things that I think back on with the doctoral students most, 90% of the doctoral students that went through UNCG was the recitals. Mm -hmm. That you guys would prepare recitals that were an hour over the limit of what you were required to prepare. They would give would be beyond what we needed, yes. But I don't know. If way way beyond. Sometimes sometimes they were two hour recitals and I would be thinking, oh no, you know, I'm gonna catch misery from the, from the other faculty that are sitting here. But I think that was a tribute to, to the students that you were, first of all, you were able to do four recitals that were long recitals. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, you could have spent the rest of your career just playing that literature. Yeah. <laughs> True. The one thing I think about is a lot of that develops from the, when I don't know if you had always been doing this, but certainly when we got into the new building, you started doing the grad only master classes uh, and, and recital uh, and uh, rep class. And yes. I think that was really helpful because we could be like, re we were really honest. You were very honest with us, like away from the undergrads about sometimes about where things were or, you know, like like me feeling comfortable giving Nathan feedback or something like that. I could. It was easier to do. <laughs> or Jeff. Well, I tell you the reason that the primary reason was just what you described. But um, a lot of the grad students were teaching one or two or three or four undergraduates. Yeah. And in a rep class, I didn't want you to be on the same level. Yeah. Um, I didn't want them critiquing their teacher, that the undergraduates could critiquing the, the graduates. And I felt like, as you said, graduates needed a, a better forum for, for critiquing each other, you know? Yeah. There were some world-class players that went through UNCG. Yeah. You know, I was thinking... Because you had like, I mean, when right before I got there was when you had Danny. Yeah. Who was like, and then like Nathan was Danny's student. And so it's like you, you kind of like there was this passing of the torch or all this stuff. And, and then Laura's there, who's like the brightest person I think I've ever met. You know, like <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty good. 
some pretty incredible people. Yeah. And some great dissertations came out of that yeah. school. Really great dissertations. Yeah. You know, there was a, a, a teacher, uh, I remember where she was from, she, another grad school. And she said, you know, I read all the dissertations throughout the country. And you by far have the best quality of dissertations mm. coming out of your school. That, that felt good. Yeah. Well, that comes from, from me writing something and spending weeks and you looking at it and then writing like either no or not even close and then just handing it all, all back to me. I, that, was a, that was always a good first step. You know, that happened to me. <laughs> from Richard? From Richard. I took a summer, rented a house in mm -hmm. Norman, Oklahoma, started to write the, the paper. Mm -hmm. And I, I just had a typewriter. Mm -hmm. In fact, computers per se weren't around except in limited form. And I spent two weeks and I, I gave him two pages of single space words. <laughs> You're not even saying sentences or paragraphs either. No. <laughs> and he came by that afternoon, he came by my house. Uh-huh. And he did, he handed it to me and he says, No, nah, not even not even close. <laughs> and I just but <laughs> and, and I said I know it's not, but I don't know how to make it better. <laughs> right. And if it hadn't been for Richard, I don't know if I'd ever finish that dissertation. Yeah. But uh, that turned out to be another kind of a glorious uh, experience for me to finish that, to write it, and then to know that to, at least to some extent I had the ability to help other students do that. There, there were students, Laura was one of them, that was a much better writer than I I am. Jeff Kalissi was a great writer. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the exciting thing about working on a dissertation with a doctoral student is, you know, not trying to fix the writing, but fixing the sequence of how material is presented and then how to... How to initiate the research to make that happen. I think, I think we have way too many doctoral programs in the United States. And I'm, I'm talking only about the dissertation at this point. Most, most schools don't call it a dissertation. It's a document. Yeah. Um, but still, you know, I never considered the word document to be mean lesser than is uh, most of you guys wrote dissertations <laughs> mm -hmm. equivalent to what the PhD people were writing. Right. And the quality was equivalent to. For me, the joy of working on a dissertation with P. Zambito was getting to the point where you could write it. Yeah. With research, thinking through it, how to approach it. Uh, you know, will other readers be able to make sense of this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then of course, waiting for the, for our meet, for the committee meeting when Ed Bach would walk in and he's like, I found 200 mistakes in the first like 
five and a half pages. <laughs> You're like, oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the uh, discouraging part for a student is to know that you've got four or five people reading that. Mm-hmm. And every one of them have different opinions right. about how to write. Yes. So putting those all together and making sense of it, mm-hmm. pretty, if you don't take it personally, it's writing is learning how to think. Yeah. That's, that's all writing is learning how to think. There's a psychologist that does a bunch of YouTube stuff, uh, not YouTube, Facebook stuff. What's his name? But he really stresses, he said, you should, everybody should write every day. Because that's how you learn to think mm-hmm. in a number of ways. And those are the things that, in terms of concept development, you can't explain that. Yeah, I don't know what I'm learning by writing, but I know that my writing was better today than it was yesterday. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that tracks with what, with what I remember is that those, those, particularly those first chapters, which are, you know, the, the proposal chapters and, and all the kind of the history and, and related right. research and all that stuff. That was a being an enormous struggle, but it eventually it came into like, it made started to make sense, but it took a lot to just to get beyond the no or not even closes. Yeah. And I think some of it, I, it might be, maybe I'm wondering on your end, if you were like, you needed to see clarity and then you could like step in and help more right as an advisor whatever you're experiencing in your brain in order as you organize that information Mm -hmm. has to be stated clearly enough for me to understand it if i don't understand it nobody else on the committee is going to understand it right uh well likely that they that they won't because the subject matter hasn't been defined closely enough. You know, you, you mentioned about my dissertation and you were asking about the Stanislavski and, and I told you I've got dozens of books and dozens of, you know, none of that made it into the dissertation or very little mm-hmm. made it into the dissertation. But it was a process of filtering and reading and verbalizing and because I, I used to talk to myself a lot you know i'd start with okay you're a dummy now how do we make sense of this uh literally okay and f- finally it would i would say uh, that doesn't belong in the dissertation but it really helps me think about movement mm-hmm. and that's what that's what you learn in those first few chapters not everybody learns that. Mm-hmm. Some people don't learn that. That that made sense also when we were doing the the background research, particularly on the other books, on the other dissertations that were written, is that yeah. a lot of that you're getting a sense of what a dissertation looks like, but you're also just kind of like you're filtering a lot. You, like you're taking extremely little from from what was actually in that dissertation to just kind of get get to why you have this is an important research thing right now well one of the key points of a good dissertation is limiting your subject 
Right. Uh, because most of us, when we when we start thinking about writing a dissertation, <clears throat> doing the research, initially we take on about ten years of research. Mm-hmm. And you know, who wants to do that? I want the degree. <laughs> so, so filtering through all that and make, having it make sense is a very difficult and exciting, intellectually exciting process. Yeah. Did you feel different after you wrote your dissertation, let's say six months down the road? I don't know if I felt different, but I knew, I knew it, it was an accomplishment. Yeah. And really, my writing after that point got so much better because I now understood how to be a, how to be clear about what I was writing about. Yeah, I feel like that was what I, I feel like that's what I learned. You know how to analyze the incoming information, yeah, and filter it out. Well, I mentioned earlier that writing is a, is a thought process. It's about learning how to think. Yeah. Uh, if you're not a good writer, uh, well, if you're not a writer that can make sense of something ultimately, mm-hmm. then probably you're not a good thinker either. I wanted, well, I, want, I haven't asked you, I wanted to ask you about NCPP was the next thing. All of those things, the book, the publishing company, all of those things sort of within a f- few very short years happened simultaneously. Mm-hmm. I had this image of putting together people from all sorts of walks of the percussion world, mm-hmm. non-percussionist band directors, yeah. music ed teachers at the university level. Uh, performers, uh, university people, high school band directors, all together for the single purpose of learning how to teach percussion better. I don't know if it's worked. (laughs) Uh, I think NCPP has been a positive voice uh, for a certain population in the percussion community. I think it's been a very important voice. The boards over the years have been, to say board, it was originally bigger because I tried to include all those various aspects of teaching. Yeah, because you had, you had, um, what, like a, a high school teacher originally, you had like Dennis Fisher, you had, uh, Tom Tallarico, is that right? Yep, yeah, a music ed person at the university level. Yeah, and uh, Dennis Fisher was a university and had been a high school band director. Um, Robert Lee was a high school, and he was my first percussion teacher in college. Mm. Uh, he was a high school band director. Was Joe Shively was on that original board? Joe Shively, uh, yeah, yeah. So a pretty powerful board in terms of influential people. Mm-hmm. Influential in my life, people I people I trusted. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I didn't care about their name. I wanted people I could trust to give me an honest assessment of what was going on, give me recommendations and ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it worked. Uh, those first few years were a little more controversial in, in terms of how we discuss things in the conference, uh, which was the intent. Let's, let's shake things up. Mm-hmm. Let's put Pete Zampito and Nathan Daughtry against each other. Like usual. Good. <laughs> yeah. Let's put them against each other and see what we can learn from that. Yeah. About teaching percussion. That's how that started. What year did that start in 2000? Didn't 2000 it? was the first year. Yeah. And then I ran it the next three. Uh, yes. My at opinion. UNCG. Yeah. At UNCG. And then, then it moved to OU. Mm-hmm. And then it's been moving around ever since then. Uh, so I was, I was really pleased with the attendance this year. There, yep. there were a lot of students there, which was terrific. Yeah, and a lot of younger, closer to beginning of career colleagues. Yes, right, right. Atmosphere in terms of shaking things up has changed a little bit. Uh, I stepped down, what, three years ago from being the director, and Lisa's done a great job of keeping us in line and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and working with the board. Yeah. Uh, so I, I hope it continues. I'm going to have to step down before long because I, 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 I'm not able to travel very well, and, mm-hmm. and I got COVID this year. Right. <laughs> First time in three years I traveled, I got COVID. Of course, that's how it does. You and Lisa were the only ones smart enough to wear a mask. Yeah, well, I was leaving the country. I told you that. That was like right after the conference, so I was not. I was not. Where did you go? I went to Paris and then Italy. Oh wow! Were were people there masked up? In places, yeah, not everywhere, but um, I mean, it's become much more of like you do it because you personally feel like you need to, which I think is, is better. It's just, yeah. Oh yeah. Versus mandating. It was, that was not good, but necessary, but not good. When you were beginning it, what, what was the first, I, I understand like kind of like how, it, how that part portion of it started, but at what point did you go, we need to have a, there needs to be another place for us to do for us to talk about percussion in the way that I guess needs a little more focus. However, you thought of the original form of the conference. Uh, I'm not sure. Not just from pace like just going to PASIC and you just not feeling like that was getting well, the done. You can compare that to Seattle publications. I started that because the big publishers weren't doing the job. They didn't know about the percussion revolution and what it what impact it was making on literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there needed to be a source of meeting that demand. Um, and the same was true for NCPP. Um, you know, you can, ha- you can have clinics on how to play the orchestral cymbals, and you can have timpani clinics, and you can have uh, 
you know, a panel of people talking about drumline, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's all kind of divorced from the need to talk about how do we work with people and teaching percussion. So that, that was kind of the basis of NCPP. We need a more thorough forum for sharing ideas, not just somebody listening to a lecture. Uh, and, and I know the board lately has been talking about we need to get back to where we have more time for discussion. Mm -hmm. More more time for discussion. Uh, so that was the, the basis of it. We need time to talk about it. We need time to disagree. Uh, maybe take on some initiatives like the the facilities and instrument thing mm -hmm. that we did, which I think has been used a lot around, at least around the United States. I don't know about foreign lands, but I wasn't all that concerned about foreign things at the outset mm -hmm. of forming NCPP. I wanted things to be better in the United States. I was thinking this past year, one of the things I really liked um, was the mentor thing. Oh yeah, as a as like a good way to to start that last day, because it was like the person I talked to actually I think I'd met years before, but it was just kind of good to just have a get to know someone much better on a one on one. Which I know that was also part of it too for that for NCPP was just having access to um having more access to people so on a smaller level. You know, what people used to say was the best thing about NCPP was when we had the, the receptions and the discussions in the hotel and over lunch, mm -hmm. you're around people in groups uh, or individuals and, and you talk about what you just heard or you, you discuss what you, you, is not good about the world of percussion. I mean, they, they enjoyed the sessions too. But the best thing about it is you have a chance to talk to people of like mind, and some of them are not of like mind. Right. Uh, and you get a chance to argue a little bit. Yeah. Or, or challenge people. You know, and it's a small enough group, and that's always been a concern. Somebody, every once in a while, somebody will say, why did it bigger? Why do you only have about 50, 60 people there? We don't want more than that. If, if you have two, 300 people, uh, you'll lose the intimacy significantly. Mm -hmm. Then it becomes about, uh, well, what, what uh, Ludwig artist or what Tama artist can we get in to give us a clinic? And we've stayed away from that. I think, for the most part. Yeah. Now, every once in a while, an artist will give us a call and say, you know, I'd like to do a session at your clinic or at your conference. And, and we look and say, well, have you ever been there? Do you know what we do? Uh, and, and that kind of ends it. <laughs> <laughs> We're not interested in your... You know, how to play swing. Sure. Even though that's important to us, that's not really what we're talking about. Yeah.
I know it's 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 great when you have to add to have added like the student concerts and yes. professionals concerts just so that I think it's just it's great just to have the people who are mostly teaching getting a chance to to play for their colleagues, I think. Absolutely. Or that. Absolutely. I would like it if uh, if there's some way to to make the student recital focus a little bit more on the pedagogy of the performance. I'm not sure how to do that, but I know the board has talked about it. You have to have fewer performances. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that we're willing to do that right now. No, I kind of know what you're asking, but or what you're what you're well, desiring. For example, for example, yeah. let's say you're a, you're an undergraduate student and you've just played uh, velocities. Mm -hmm. And maybe you give a little five minute thing on this is what I learned. This is why I would never play this again. You should never have a person my age playing this <laughs> for the following reasons. Uh, and but but I improve I improve my double laterals or I improve my my uh, perception, my outside perception of doing this. So uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can't assume those things from just a, a, a performance. You don't know what the student learned. And the, and the student may not ever have been asked to articulate that information. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, That would be a little bit more emphasis on the, the purpose of the conference. Sure. Now, yeah. I, I've always thought that those, those performances were a good way of sharing literature. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, and to some extent, that's worked. Uh, I heard lots of new pieces this year. That's the thinking on that. Yeah, gotcha. This is like a timeline thing. Go. This is going back now a sec, but you did your coursework for your doctorate in the early '80s, but you didn't. The, but your document didn't finish till the late '80s, right? I went to graduate school in. 78. Okay. And uh, I did two years of residency. I had a graduate assistant ship. Mm -hmm. Then I went to Southwestern Oklahoma State for four years. I did a lot of the research, the library type research uh, during those years, but I, I didn't finish until 82. Five. Okay. When I went to UNCG in '83, they said you've got two years. If you don't have it done in two years, we're going to kick you out of here. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so I went back two summers to write. When I said Richard brought those two pages back and said not even close, he said you need to get a computer. So I went over to Oklahoma City and bought a. A computer, it was called a Capro. Okay. It was a gray box. Uh-huh. And it had a six-inch screen on it. Mm -hmm. Green screen. Yeah, yeah. And the true floppy disks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and MS-DOS. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> and initially, I uh, I printed everything on a dot matrix because that's uh, all we had. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, the next summer, when I started thinking about, well, I, I can't, even the best quality print on a dot matrix won't pass the graduate school guidelines. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So I went to a store, uh, a business machine store, and bought a electric Smith Corona typewriter and a module that plugged into the typewriter that the computer then plugged into that allowed me to print on the typewriter. Oh, okay, because that was better quality. That was better quality, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'd sit there for hours making sure the paper was not going crooked in the typewriter. <laughs> that was the Just in the, this, and you're like, ah! There it is. Uneven. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a learning curve too, <laughs> but the but the Apple computers at that time we didn't have Macs at that time. They came shortly after that. Yeah, they just they just wouldn't produce uh, the, the the product. Mm-hmm. I kept those discs. I must have had fifty discs, floppy discs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Car- carried them around for years, thinking. You know, these ought to be end up in the Smithsonian somewhere, sometime. Right. No. Nope. <laughs> yeah. It's wild. What was learning under Richard like? That's an interesting question. You know, Richard and I are the same age. Hmm. And I came in during Richard's second year at OU. Okay. But Richard had a much stronger background in percussion training than I had had as an undergraduate and through a master's degree. Mm -hmm. But he got his doctor, his doctor is an EDD, Mm -hmm. which is the same as a PhD, but back in those days, it was called EDD because it was in education. Right. So... So we thought similarly Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, research and what we wanted to know about humans and and that sort of thing. And he was a brilliant analyst in terms of percussion performance. So I didn't have to take lessons Mm -hmm. on the PhD. In fact, they tried to talk me out of it. Mm. They certainly didn't want me in the percussion ensemble because, well, that, that'll take away from your research. Yeah, but this is what I'm going to do, so I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I worked through a, some basic literature with Richard, uh, and we spent hours, hours analyzing the independent grip that Lee was selling at the time. Mm -hmm. 
and and sort of collectively trying to figure it out mm -hmm. uh, so that we could do a better job of teaching it to others. I, I remember taking some timpani lessons from Richard, and I was always told I was a good timpanist, but I knew I wasn't. I could do some flashy things and produce some sounds, but I never felt good about roles. I never felt good about grip control. So one thing I did, uh, <laughs> at that time, the percussion studio was a big classroom in an old building. And Richard's office was separated from that by a single wall. Mm. Uh, so I would go in at 7 o'clock in the morning, and Richard would be in there, hopefully trying to get some work done before I started beating on things. And I would sit there by the hour just playing single notes mm -hmm. to try to get the grip right, mostly in the left hand. And then eventually I, I, I got to a point where I felt really satisfied with it. But, but it took a lot of patience of Richard to <laughs> get right. through that ordeal. Yeah. Yeah, but I think I think the the cool thing about studying with Richard was, like I say, he had he had a greater uh, excuse me experience with performing and and playing percussion instruments. But but we were at a time where there were so many things happening that were new. Mm -hmm. We had a great time. I had a great time. I can't answer for him. Working with him in analyzing that information. Just really trying to figure it out. Uh, because I actually had more of an interest, as I said earlier, in teaching than I did in being a... Uh, I wasn't interested in being Lee Howard Stevens at all. But I wanted to be able to dissect. I think that's a key to, to, to being a good teacher is to be able to dissect what you do mm -hmm. and then be able to verbalize it. Yeah. So it was a good experience working with Richard, yeah. watching the percussion ensemble grow, the recognition of the percussion ensemble, working with him you know, on solo literature, uh, that it was it was exciting, and 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 also at that time, Richard was the one that taught the experimental research class for PhD students. Mm. So uh, he was able to make that make sense to dummies like me. I was terrible at math all the way off school, high school, all the way through. Terrible. Uh, and I'm here in high school. The math teacher's daughter was my age. And, and she was, of course, brilliant. And one day he brought a, there was a, it was called SAR, SRA, program text, where on this side would be the questions on this side would be how you do it, okay? 
So he one day he handed me a program text for Algebra 1, and he handed it to her. And about a week later, I thought, you know, he's seeing if a dummy and a brilliant person could do this. <laughs> well, I couldn't because I was still in the classroom and he was talking all the time. Mm -hmm. So I, I couldn't focus on it. Anyway, with Richard at OU in the, in the uh, research class, we did a, a higher level of statistics than the algebra that I did in high school, and I was able to do it. What do you think made the difference? Not talking? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that. Yeah. It was the calculator. Oh, yeah. The handheld calculator appeared. Mm -hmm. So once I could, I could, you know, do what's nine by eight? I don't know. Oh, that's it. As soon as the calculator appeared, I learned that I wasn't exactly a total dummy at math in terms of formulas and, and making those work for research purposes. That was an enlightenment. Richard had a really big calculator on his desk that did all sorts of uh, functions. Mm -hmm. I think he paid six, seven hundred dollars for it when he was a graduate student. And uh, I went to the university bookstore and bought this tiny Texas instrument. Just I could wrap my whole hand around it, a little tiny thing. Mm -hmm. it had twice as much of what Richard's had on it. And mm -hmm. I paid like thirty dollars for it. <laughs> The other exciting thing about working with Richard was Richard was was finishing his doctorate at the same time hmm. as I was starting mine, and he got it from Penn State. Uh, so I watched him go through the process of collecting information. Uh, his research was on interaction analysis. Okay. Remember doing that in uh, PED class where... You you we, we uh, you coded. You probably erased this from your brain. We watched the video. I was unfortunately asleep for a lot of that class. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> well, that's why you got to see it. Yeah, I did a little better than that. Yeah. Anyway. 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 So I watched him go through that process of collecting the research, and and uh, and producing his product and. To this day, I wish that teachers had the ability to record themselves. Well, they didn't have the ability, and they have a tool to do it uh, through his research. But I wish we could we could actually do it. If you've got a student who's great, somebody sort of in the middle of the road, or somebody's terrible, if you could videotape that and analyze the behaviors in that interaction. It's going to tell you a lot about you and the student. Yeah. That you should then be able to improve your approach to teaching that student. But that's, those kinds of things are of interest to me, but they're not 
a part of the performance-oriented tradition of teaching music. Mm -hmm. Teaching music today is, or has been forever, I guess, heavily reliant upon personality. Yeah. Uh, if you take a certain kind of personality and back that up with information, then you got even a better teacher, I think. I don't know. I made lots of mistakes along the way. But I wouldn't want to redo it. <laughs> well, Richard, I because I, I, I've barely had any interaction with him, but watching him work with the um with the percussion ensemble and and I'm wondering if, if some of this rubbed rubbed off on you but there was an ability that he had where he it seemed like he could get them to do an enormous amount musically while he was doing very little uh on the podium at least it appeared from behind like he, there was not I don't so it must have been worked out in rehearsal or something but like I always felt like there was a lot of range that that group played with. And he is very much, seems very much like a, like a, um, I was going to say laid back, but just kind of a quiet person. Richard is, is uh, incredibly brilliant. Okay. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that brilliance is intimidating. I think students in the OU program were motivated through his brilliance because he knew what he wanted. Mm -hmm. But they were also intimidated enough to get the job done. <laughs> uh, he, he, did not, he did not rule by yelling, mm -hmm. but he could be very forceful. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know in terms of raw intelligence Richard just has a lot of that that comes across in his verbal dialogue and his musicianship and Richard was a great arranger mm. a really good arranger I remember he wrote a, an arrangement of uh, Send In the Clowns. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> and I said, you know what's missing in this is this kind of an obligato thing uh, on the marimba at a certain point. He said, write it. Well, then I had to play it. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't play very well what I'd written. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he was he was a brilliant guy. He he just retired mm. from uh, being dean at uh, TCU. TCU, yeah. He wore a lot of different hats at OU. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was started as the percussion teacher. He he taught music ed, taught graduate level. PhD courses. He was the director of the School of Music. He was, uh, I don't remember the title, but he was like the right-hand man of the, of the president of the university for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then he went to 
TCU as director there, became the dean. Uh, yeah, he he knows what's going on. And and I think those early years at TCU, he, he helped quite a bit with the percussion program. He helped Brian get his feet on the ground. Yeah. But he's not, he's not a flashy guy. No. And which is good. <laughs> but he gets the work done. Yeah. And he's the one that made that new building happen at OU. And he did the same thing at TCU. Yeah. And I'm sure he's enjoying a drink and some sunshine right now. Probably saying, what is McLaren talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Again? <laughs> it just puts him right back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we've, uh, we've talked for about three hours, so. You should um, have at least 20 minutes out of that. At least 20 minutes. So the segment's called Random Ask Questions. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And so how'd they do it? Nailed an impression of me? Yeah. You mean a physical impression? Physical or voice impression. <clears throat> Last Dreggy did it <laughs> at Southwestern Oklahoma State University. That's right. He was your, your student there, right? Yes, that's right. He, uh, I didn't see it. Oh. But they might have shown me a picture. But, you know, back in those days... I don't like to think about what I wear. That's why I don't dress very well. <laughs> uh, so back in those days, I wore gray pants mm -hmm. and a blue dress shirt. I think I might have worn a tie. I'm not sure. Like every day? Yeah. <laughs> Rarely changed. Yeah. I mean, it was clean, obviously, but yeah. that's just, I didn't have to think about what to wear. Yeah. Uh, and... Kappa Kappa Psi, the band fraternity, had a party, and Lance came dressed as me. <laughs> and I had a little goatee back in those days. He even put a goatee on. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> nice. That's a good he one. nailed. Did, did he do your voice or, or just, just dressed up as you? I don't know. All I know is that he dressed up as me and... And people still talk about it today. <laughs> That's nice. I mean, obviously, we would. I mean, you can imagine, like me and Jeff, and like John N and Nathan would do impressions of you in an office. Uh, in in my office? No, in no in in the grad school office. <laughs> I don't think I ever heard any of those. <laughs> you want to share one of those with me? Sure, you know I will because uh, just in the <laughs> spirit. But this is what was funny. This was actually not necessarily something from um, from UNCG, but it was something from the from C. Allen, uh, where you would be on the phone talking to someone, and you'd laugh, and then you'd say, "Is that right?" <laughs> so, so when we say something funny, and, and you'd be like. <laughs> is that right and then we would that would be that would be kind of our point. i can hear that yeah 
<laughs> nice. Nice. Uh, it, it honors me to to do that for you for here. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you were because you. I'm, I've never asked you about this particular thing, but you grew up in Kansas and you were there for a lot of your your younger part of your life. Were you, did you ever have a sports fandom? A what? Were you ever a fan of a sports team or a, a college college team or something like that? Like when you were. Oh, no, I hate sports. Oh. Well, not really. I thought in my early years that football was just dumb. Uh, I was a, a trainer for a while. I took a course on how to patch people up, mm-hmm. do that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, and I, I always thought it was just, how silly is this? These guys are beating each other up every day and, and thinking it's a real cool thing. So I didn't like that. I did not do sports in high school except swimming. Mm. Oh, uh, sure. and that was that was summertime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had we had a really good uh, traveling uh, swim team. Which you think out in Western Kansas, how does that happen? But we traveled a lot. We went to the Junior Olympics and. Uh, um, I did the breaststroke and, and freestyle, which was American crawl. And I was, I would, I would sometimes win, and, and most of the time I'd be second. Okay. Because uh, a good friend was was a great athlete, all star basketball player, and mm-hmm. he got interested in swimming also, and he was the the number one. Uh, but I was happy to compete with those guys in swimming. Uh, and I, I still like watching Olympic swimming. Cool. I mean, those guys, those guys are incredible. I mean, they're yeah. just women. I shouldn't say guys, but I mean, men and women uh, are just incredible to watch the skills that they have. Yeah. yeah. But most of those men are tall. Yes. Like basketball uh, I, player tall. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, yeah. But no, I was I, I don't I don't like watching sports. Mm. It, I mean I like watching swimming. Mm-hmm. Uh but I can I can watch basketball. I, I, actually I interestingly enough, and somebody's gonna think I'm strange, but I kinda like watching female uh softball. Okay, I mean, I've run across that on 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 YouTube occasionally. Wow, well, there's a it's basically watching the pitchers uh, and the skill that they have. I, I, I don't know how they do it, but yeah, their games their games are usually pretty. Uh, uh, they have a lot of momentum in their playing. Yeah, I'm not going to watch it every Saturday or every month or every six months, but occasionally. That's kind of exciting. That the balls come in very like they're not that far away from the plate, and there's they're really fast. Like I'm always impressed that people get anything on on a pitch. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, they work on that. It's a, there's yeah. an art to that, just like yeah. uh, Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. To hear you there. Do you have a favorite movie? No, I don't. Uh, 
If you'd asked me that 40 years ago, I would have said Dr. Chicago. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, today, there are so many average movies that it'd be difficult for me. I don't go to the theater anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got to be on the computer. Mm. So I probably miss out on a little bit, but you know, over time, uh, it's got to be something really compelling yeah. for me to watch it. It's got to be something that makes me, that, that makes my uh, cerebral cortex tingle a little bit mm -hmm. in order to watch it. I don't, I don't have TV. Mm. Uh, I haven't had one for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and when I go to the doctor's office and I sit there in the waiting room and watch those TVs, I think, oh, this is why I don't have TV. <laughs> yeah. It just, you know, not many things interest me anymore unless I'm going to learn something from it. Mm. Unless it's going to provide something that makes me think. Mm -hmm. uh, Think something good. Think something useful. Yeah. I don't want to hear all the political garbage on TV. Yeah. No. And it's not just during the news. It's everywhere. Right. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I got you there. Do you have a um, Do you have a favorite book? You know, when I when I finally retired. Mm -hmm. Completely, uh, January 1st, 2020, mm -hmm. I started reading. I just went to the bookstore and picked up some books. A couple, well, six, three, four of them. A couple I didn't like at all. It was the, 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 the flow of the dialogue and the story. These were fiction. Mm -hmm. it, it didn't fit my brain. Yeah, uh, but I found this this author named C.J. Box. Um, he writes about Joe Pickett, who is a uh, forest ranger in Wyoming, and he's got all these, you know, he rides horses and he shoots guns, and mm -hmm. and he's a smart guy, and his wife's smart, and he's got this friend that uh, used to be in the CIA that that still kills people, but. But it's not a, it's not a, they're thrillers, but they're not, uh, let's see how many people I can kill type sure. stories. I read a bunch of his, his books, but in the first three months of my retirement, I read 35 books. <laughs> Goodness. Wow. Now, I hadn't read 35 books since I was a first grader. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. The only thing that I had read up until that point was academia and uh, dissertations. Bad <laughs> dissertations, good right. dissertations. You know, contracts. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. But I had not read for pleasure in all of that time. So I read those books and then I put a couple of them. Uh, then I put them down. I just, it's like, whew, okay, boy, was that exciting. I'm done with that. <laughs> And I've read a couple since then, uh -huh. uh, but I, I, 
can't say that I have a favorite book. Um, I'd like to say that there's some famous book that I I should be able to quote and say that's my favorite book, but I don't. You know, I guess if I had to say my favorite book is B.F. Skinner, who's a behavioral psychologist. <laughs> I enjoyed reading him back in the day. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of fiction, nah, I, I don't have a favorite book. Yeah. It's like, what, who's your favorite sports team? Well, none of them. What is your biggest kitchen mess up? Most recently, my biggest kitchen mess up recently was a brand new pot. Mm -hmm. About an eight inch, nine inch pot. About that deep, probably two quart. Mm -hmm. I was cooking something, put it in there. Left, totally forgot about it until I smelled smoke. Uh oh. Uh, so, but in terms of making things, mm-hmm. uh, I don't screw that up too much. Uh, now it may it may not taste good to you, <laughs> but I can I can eat most anything I fix unless I burn it. Right. Or you forget you're making it. Well, and I had to, I had to throw that pot away because oh. it burned it all the way down, and it just brand new pot. Oh. But it was not going to get cleaned. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know uh, I have electric uh, grills on the on the on the stove. You know, like four elements, I guess they, they're called. Yeah. And underneath they have those drip right mm-hmm. things. When those get dirty, I don't clean them. I just replace them. Nah. Because <laughs> I remember as a kid, my mother used to try to make me, or she made me clean those things, scrub them. And so I, I don't, I don't, it's like, uh, I, I don't do, I don't pick flowers either. I, mm-hmm. uh, my mother would plant flowers and then I would have to take care of them and, until I ran over them with a mower. Mm-hmm. And then I would go apologize. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Gotcha. All right. A couple more. Uh, strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment in any ver- uh, venue, but that you were involved in or happened to you? You know, Pete, I've forgotten most of this stuff. Sure. I mean, the only thing I can remember, it's not strange, it's just an, a green, naive idiot mm-hmm. playing the professional orchestra. One of the first, this was a rehearsal, thank God. <laughs> uh, I was playing with the Oklahoma Symphony Orchestra, and and I was playing crash cymbals. And we came up to the place where I was supposed to crash, and the orchestra stopped, and then I crashed. And the entire orchestra turned around and looked at me. <laughs> you imagine all those violins just turning around, and all the trumpet, the brass, the woodwind people just turning their heads. 
And I just, you know, the the conductor was a guy from Mexico, Luis Herrera. I always thought he was a good musician. Uh, and I looked up and I just went. <laughs> and thumbs up. Knew, I knew that I screwed up and <laughs> that was it. <laughs> just, you, I, I can just feel the contempt coming from the rest of the orchestra. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but they yeah. continued to ask me to play. Yeah, that's good. Good. <laughs> All right. Last question, uh, Court. One piece of art, any art, any form of art, uh, you know, visual or music or books, TV, whatever. But what has impacted you the most recently? Well, you know, in terms of a lifetime, uh, music for sure. I can still listen to a recording of of an orchestra if it's a good piece of music and just be mesmerized by it. Now I tend to analyze it as it goes by. Sure. I remember in graduate school I had a course called Techniques of Variation. It was very well taught, low key. But what I learned in that course was was life changing in terms of form and and music composition. So you know, and I don't like to listen to jazz anymore. I think it's become too uh, flamboyant. I, I can listen to early early jazz. You know, Errol Garner, Oscar Peterson. That's not really early, but it's stuff I can listen to. I never have liked plink plink punk music. I'm aware. I I just I don't yeah, I and I'm not afraid to say I don't like it and mm-hmm. it should be eradicated from the planet. I don't like pictures of apples and oranges and bananas and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Or flowers. But I was in an art store two Christmases ago, I think. There was an artwork there of a bouquet of interesting shaped and looking flowers mm-hmm. by a Hungarian artist. Uh, and I found that it's like, you mean I actually like that? <laughs> uh, it was pretty expensive, but you know, if you put it on a credit card, you don't have to pay for it anyway. So <laughs> I, I bought it. <laughs> I like I like good art. I'm mm-hmm. not going to spend twenty ten thousand. There were there was another. Uh, uh, artwork by this guy in the in the store that was for forty five thousand dollars, and that was uh, <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't spend that kind of money, but uh, I do like art. I like jewelry, women's jewelry uh, that's just delicate and classy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. That that means those words mean something to me, but I don't think mean anything to anyone else. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's about it. 
I'm kind of an ordinary guy, Pete. I <laughs> <laughs> no sports. <laughs> yeah. No TV, which that that does not make you ordinary, actually. <laughs> so, all right, court, we're done. Thanks for doing this. Uh, yeah. And like I say, if it, you know, if you can't use any of it, we can do it again, or uh, or just toss it in the trash. All right. <laughs> okay. One of the two. It's going to be one of the two. All right. But um. To you for doing this, Pete. I think it's cool. I've yeah. always been afraid. You've asked me a couple times, and I've been frightened of doing it for fear of, well, for fear of not being able to maintain my focus. Yeah. Uh, and just saying something stupid. I think I probably did both today. So. So it's 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 another day. <laughs> is what you're saying? Yeah, it's another day. <laughs> It was really, really great to get the chance to have Court on the show. As mentioned during episode 300, this was six years in the making. And I'll be honest, we left a lot out of that conversation. So maybe one day, he'll return and we'll talk about all of that stuff. This week's rave is the 2022 film, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, starring Nicolas Cage from 2021-22, Nick Cage from the 1990s, more on that in a minute, Pedro Pascal, Sharon Horgan, Tiffany Haddish, and Neil Patrick Harris, and directed and written by Tom Gormican. Okay. Deep breath. If you have come across this movie, it is fair for you to think, is this actually going to be good? Do I want to see this? Or it can't be good. Or this good, right? Yes, it can. I am, by no means, the biggest Nicolas Cage fan, but I've definitely seen a lot of his movies over the years. The amount and interest in his films from his entire career has waxed and waned, as it has with likely everyone else. But if you've had an interest and caught up with various Nick Cage roles, then the movie is for you. And, in particular, if you've watched or have some familiarity with three of his action masterpieces from the late 1990s, a.k.a. Con Air, Face Off, and The Rock. This movie is definitely for you. And if you're just a massive Nick Cage fan, I mean, you've probably already seen this movie. The plot is as follows. Nicolas Cage is, in fact, playing Nicolas Cage, a version of himself from the present day who is struggling with family, fame, and money, including with his relationship with his ex-wife, who's played by Sharon Horgan, and is struggling to get good roles. He's presented with an opportunity by his agent, played by Neil Patrick Harris, to make a large amount of money by showing up at an island getaway estate of a man of wealth, played by Pedro Pascal, who has a very shady business side and is being trailed by a CIA agent that's played by Tiffany Haddish. Pascal is also the world's biggest Nicolas Cage superfan. Pascal's character is such a big fan that he wants Cage there to help him write and finish a movie that stars the two of them. Chaos and hilarity ensue, and there is a lot of both. And I should mention, in a split-screen role, a CGI'd version of, and I'll put this in quotes, Nick Cage, 
from the early 1990s is played by the current Nick Cage and it ends up playing off of the actual current Nick Cage in a few scenes of hallucination. And if that's a lot to take in, that's understandable, though these scenes are great and incredibly disturbing at the same time. As stated earlier, the more you are into the Nicolas Cage canon, the more you will enjoy this film. There are a lot of both deep and quick-moving references to works throughout his career, including but not limited to earlier works like Moonstruck and Raising Arizona, to his mid-career works like the action films mentioned earlier and Gone in 60 Seconds, to some of his more recent fare like the National Treasure movies, The Crudes, and Mandy, and many more. Again, the further down the Nick Cage hatch you fall, the more you get rewarded in this film. And more so, the movie experience is just a damn good time. I saw it in our local art house theater with two other sets of folks in the room, and we were all enjoying ourselves, including me, who was cackling throughout the entire film. So, seriously, check out The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, now streaming, and be dazzled. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at PeteSperkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.